we remember those who died in the, the world wars and other wars this morning. Those who've given their lives for our freedom and for the, va- for the values and the protection of our nation. Um, and it's sobering to consider the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that they made. So there's a link with what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you've been coming to the church here for a while, you'll probably be aware that we've been trying to work through the Bible in a year. It's quite difficult to do on a preaching service once a week. So we're not going to preach on like one fifty-tooth of the, what that word is, of the Bible this morning. But um, we've been trying to follow the big story of the Bible through the Old and New Testament. Um, and we spent quite a lot of time in the Old Testament, and uh, we've just finished a series on Jesus, called Simply Jesus. Um, and we're moving on really now to a series about the church. So we consider, you know, one of the things Luke said in his gospel was, he said, I've written to you about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And uh, the implication there is that Jesus is continuing to do things and to teach our world, in our world. Um, And Paul Veal, if you were here last week, introduced this series with uh, a talk about ecclesia, which is the commonest word that's translated church in the Bible. And uh, it's a historical anomaly that it got translated as church because the word actually means assembly. And uh, so it's a gathering together of people. And almost every time in the New Testament, the word ecclesia is translated church. But there are a couple of, um, uh, of exceptions. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, there's a story where they gathered together, a whole lot of people gathered together to try to put the, uh, the early Christians on trial. And the word ecclesia is used to describe the gathering, the mob that were trying to assault these uh, Christians. But there was also a second meaning of ecclesia on that day when the leader of the town council, the clerk of the town council, stood up and said, come on, guys, we can't flog these people. They need to go before the town council, the ecclesia. So ecclesia means a government assembly. It's a place of authority in society where notable people gathered together to make decisions. Town council, if you like. And the authors of the books of the New Testament wanted people to realize that the church is God's plan for authority in our world. It's a locus of government. We are called to rule over our cities, our towns, our nation. The church is designed to be the means by which God rules the world through his people. So over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at some other metaphors, some other pictures of what the church is like. But today, uh, we're going to talk about the church as the body of Christ. Um, The early church was so radical that it turned the world upside down. They said in the beginning of Acts 17, these guys, these people have come to us. They had a reputation. They changed the world. Um, And we're going to be talking about the body of Christ. So um, if you've got a Bible, um, open it up if you want to, to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Otherwise, the the words will be coming on the screen. And if you've got it on your phone... um, 
you don't keep the phone open and then start playing Angry Birds or something on it uh, while I'm speaking. Thanks. <laughs> um, right. Romans 12, 1 to 9. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Let's pray together. Father, you have spoken your word and given us your living truth. Would you give us ears to hear this morning? Lord, make our hearts receptive to you, to what you want to say to us. And I pray, Father God, that you would have your way in each of our lives today. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I, 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 one of the things I love doing is I love digging into the words. I love words. I love trying to find out what they really mean. Because a lot of words that we use have meanings that change over a period of time. I mean, you know, since when did sick mean great or wicked or something? You know, I don't understand teenage lingo, but there you go. Perhaps I need a lesson. Um, but I actually enjoy digging into the words and, and, the, and the meanings of them to understand what they're really trying to say. And if you really want to do that, you have to go back to the original Greek sometimes. And now my original Greek is highly original, um, but uh, it, I really like to find out what the words are start trying to say. And our passage actually starts with one of those funny words. It's a little word. You could easily skip over it. Um, but it's, it's therefore. And uh, when I read the word therefore in the Bible, I think, I wonder what that's there for. Why is it there? So we need to ask that. We need to look back at the context of what Paul is saying in this passage. Sort of what Paul is saying in the context of what he said previously. So I'm going to give you a bit of introduction to the book of Romans. I think we've got about an hour and a half. Is that okay? No, seriously, we're not going to be there here all day. Um, but I just want to give you a bit of introduction to the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. So within 15 years of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a church in Rome. 
unlike a lot of other churches we read about in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul had not founded that church. Um, He had never been to Rome, but he was really interested in its development as a church, and he really wanted to visit. Originally, the church had consisted of Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, Um, But then the Jews were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor uh, Claudius. The others, the ones who were left, the Gentiles, funny word, isn't it? The non-Jewish people were left trying to work out what it really means to live in the context of this amazing kingdom of God. Eventually, the Jews were allowed to return five years later. But by that point, there was a a split in the beliefs and practices. And the Jews and the Gentiles weren't really getting along together. So Paul wrote to the, the, the Roman church to appeal for unity in Christ, expressed through humility and forgiveness. His message was that that love fulfills the law of God. So the letter to Romans is actually the clearest explanation that we have of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Um, that Paul wrote. He, he wrote lots of things in other places, but it's the clearest explanation. He wanted the believers to get their foundations absolutely right, to understand that we live in a broken and guilty world, that we have all personally contributed to that brokenness, through our sinful choices and our mistakes. And that God needed to provide a new way to put our lives right with him. To give us a new status, a new family, and a new future. And to this end, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. But through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead... He enables us to live a new life radically transformed by his power. So that is what the therefore is there for. So the picture in this passage is um, of the church as the body of Christ. Paul uses the metaphor of human body to explain that we're all interconnected, uh, that we're all linked to each other and we're all reliant on each other. For those of you who don't know me... um, I work in the medical field, Um, so the body is quite an easy concept for me, but it's not too difficult for any of us, because we've all got one. The body needs all its parts to function. If the body is missing some of its parts, it's not complete. Many of those who came back from the wars returned with serious injuries, loss of limbs, loss of eyes, serious deformities. If the body is missing a part, it's not complete. If you were missing an arm and a leg, or arm or a leg, you would be seriously disabled. And as the body of Christ, the church is not complete if one or more parts is missing. Paul's painting a picture of an organism where all the parts depend on each other. They're all connected. They all, have, all the parts have different functions, but every part is important. Some parts are more prominent, like legs or arms or eyes. Sometimes the mouth is a little bit too prominent, maybe. And and other parts aren't prominent, like your kidneys, for instance. How many people think that the kidneys are part of your body? 
You wonder what the kidneys are in the body of Christ, I guess. Um, But if the kidneys aren't functioning or are missing, they have a devastating effect. That has a devastating effect on the health of that person. You need your kidneys to survive. Otherwise, you've got to have dialysis three times a week for a whole day. You've got, it just totally affects your health, your well-being, your ability to function. You don't want tomorrow morning for your kidneys not to come to work. Seriously, you don't want that. Jesus said, on this rock, upon this rock, I will build my church. The church is the gathered body of Christ. We gather together to be part of the body. The body needs all its parts and is incomplete without them. Uh, We can gather together in lots of different ways. On a Sunday, in small groups, huddles, teams. We have teams teams of people who come on on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to serve people in the community, people who are less well-off than others. If we were missing them, the whole body would be less without them. If you, know, if you don't come, we miss you. Or as the French would say it, the way the French say it is, you are missing from me. If I miss you, you are missing from me. I am less complete without you. If you're part of a group and somebody doesn't come, do you miss them? Elaine uh, was reminding me uh, earlier in the car coming in that... Um, we, we talk, used to talk about somebody in, in our previous church who was, we just, was described by somebody as the false teeth of the church. Like that. Sometimes they're in and sometimes they're out. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. As a body would be bizarre if it just consisted of legs or just eyes. So is the body of Christ. God has made us all differently with different personalities, strengths and gifts. But all of them are important for the function and purpose that God has for his body. Not everyone has the same role, but every role is important. And none of the roles can function without the others. Legs, for instance, don't walk around on their own. They're actually connected to the body. If they're not connected, they die, frankly. But as part of the body, they have bones and nerves and blood vessels and muscles and other tissues to keep them connected. So passage we've just read gives a list of seven gifts that the church might have. But the church has many more gifts than that. And if you want to know about some of the other gifts, you can uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or um, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. And there are other places in the New Testament where it talks about different gifts that aren't mentioned in those lists. But we've got here prophecy, which is speaking out the mind of Christ in a particular situation. We've got service, which originally meant waiting on tables. And now we might say, people who serve in the welcome team or the host team, 
people who serve cleaning, people who do things for the other members of the body. They're servants. Teaching. Not everybody gets to stand up like this and try to teach a whole group of people. But lots of people have teaching gifts that are useful for building other people up, either one-to-one or in small groups. Do you have that gift? Do you use it? One up two. Encouragement. So the word for encouragement um, really means to come alongside. The word is parakaleo. I'll come back to that in a minute. It means to actually come alongside. There's a sense of leaning in to give benefit to someone. So, you know, can we encourage one another day by day? Can we build each other up? Really, any of us can do that at times. Hebrews 10.24 talks about considering how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Giving. Uh, This has a sense of sharing with others who are in need, with generosity and simplicity, no strings attached, no self-seeking. Mercy or compassion, again, reflects the divine grace that he's poured out on us. We, We are merciful because he is merciful to us. We sang earlier about the, 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 how great, how great, how great is your love. I missed out leadership on the way through because I wanted to particularly say something about that. The, the, the gift of leadership in the church is kind of different from the gift of leadership in the world. There are lots of people who are good leaders in the world. But in the church, it comes from character, not from skill. And you build that character through serving uh, rather than being clever or just good at leading. So we model leadership from hard work and service. There's no sense of dominating people, but rather protecting and guarding them. Jesus said, those who want to be great among you must be your servant. So if you want to lead, start serving. And this leads on to the next uh, section in the chapter, the first bit which says, let love be sincere. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes on, he says, I'll show you a better way, a more excellent way, and then goes on to talk about love. Love needs to be sincere without hypocrisy, not have two faces, all those things that are there. I can't go into that today. Part of the issue that we have with gifts is that uh, we actually think we are God's gift some of the time, and actually we're not. All these gifts are from God. Paul says we should have a right estimation of ourselves. In verse 3, he calls on us, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. We're not to be high-minded or overly proud of our gifts, but to be humble and honest, sound-minded and realistic. The gifts are exactly that. They are gifts from God for the benefit of others. We have absolutely no right to take any credit. We need to understand that it's entirely down to the kindness of God who allots to each of us the measure of faith we need to exercise those gifts. 
So you might have noticed that I'm actually preaching my way backwards through this passage. Perhaps you hadn't, but I have. So what is the impact? Well, we have these gifts, supernatural and natural gifts. They are precisely that gifts given by God in grace. They are to be exercised in the body when we gather together. They are to be exercised according to the faith that God has given us. And if you feel you're lacking in faith, just ask. He'll give you faith. One of the problems we have with our gifts is they tend to be uh, distorted by sin and evil in the world, things that have happened to us, um, our culture around us. There's something out of shape with them. And so when we think about gifts, we think, well, maybe we've got something great to offer. And actually, we need to bring those gifts to God as an offering ourselves. And we'll come on to that in a minute. You might think, do you know what? I'm not that bothered. I've got plenty to do with my life. Is he going to go on much longer? I see Steve thinking that at the back there. Um, Paul sees things slightly differently. At the beginning of the chapter, he makes this appeal. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. He tells us that we need to step away from being conformed to the pattern of our world. Our lives need to be transformed, our minds renewed. This is a strong challenge. N.T. writes the Kingdom New Testament version, says this, What's more, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The message says this, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And then the passion translation. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. A total reformation of how you think. Are we willing to let God do this in our lives? There is a bit of an added benefit, actually, here, because one of the questions Christians ask a lot is, uh, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Well, Paul alludes to it. He said, and then you'll be able to know what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We will be able to find out what God wants if we commit ourselves to following him. So, Paul says, I urge you. This is where this word parakaleo comes from. Parakaleo has this this kind of feeling of coming alongside to call something out in someone. And we know that the Holy Spirit is known as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us. Do you want to switch on to the next? Thank you. Um, I urge you, parakaleo. I come alongside you to to encourage you, to draw something out within you. There's a sense of urgency and seriousness in his appeal. This is a serious matter. It's a passionate exhortation to us. He exhorts, he encourages, he appeals. 
he calls on us to present our bodies. The Greek word there is soma, and it's better translated as whole selves, not just our physical bodies. Every part of us. Look at the Amplified Version translation of that. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. The message translation says it like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. He's calling us to devote our whole lives, every aspect of our lives to him. Now, what I'm going to say next isn't going to be very comfortable, I'm afraid. Paul is using a metaphor of temple sacrifice, not a familiar picture that we have these days. The offering is to be a living sacrifice. We need to be willing to lay every aspect of our lives on the altar before God. All our desires, all our hopes, all our aspirations, all our ambitions all our gifts, all the good bits of our lives, all the bad bits of our lives, all the parts that are visible to others and all the bits that we keep hidden and are known only to us. Jesus in Luke 9.23 said this, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Daily, it's an ongoing process, a living sacrifice. Jesus calls us to embrace being a living sacrifice. Allowing the cross of Christ to have an impact on lives is not easy and not comfortable sometimes. The problem is sacrifices aren't meant to survive. Fire always falls on sacrifice. Sacrifices get burnt up. They get changed unrecognizably. You're left with smoke and ashes. What's left looks less than what was there before. But actually in this lies the amazing purpose of God. He can take the ashes and the smoke and make something even more beautiful and valuable than was there before. This upside-down kingdom of God takes the broken, worthless, valueless, fruitless things and makes them new, full of worth, full of value and fruitful. Paul said about Jesus, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is able to raise us up from that place of sacrifice. Are you willing Are you willing to become a living sacrifice for his fire to rest on? Our problem is that we try to crawl off the altar. It's the problem with being a living sacrifice, because normally sacrifice is dead before it gets put on the altar. 
But if our worship is to be real, our, our lives to be presented before God in that sort of really powerful way, then we need to start from the fact that God has already sacrificed his son to be an offering for our sins. The word in, in verse 1, I, I urge you by the mercies of God. The word, the word for mercies is different from the mercy that was a gift. And it actually means a gut-wrenching, visceral, internal pain like a mother feels during labor. It squeezes us. God's, that's God's mercy. It squeezes him. It squeezed him to give his son Jesus for us. And it squeezes him as he reaches out to us. His mercy is incredible. He loves us. He's passionate about us. And out of this mercy, he gave his son Jesus to rescue sinners like us. He watches for us, longs for us to return to him. So our only logical response, and Paul uses the word logical, logikos, for this reasonable sacrifice, the only reasonable response for us is to present ourselves as an offering to him. We can, of course, reject that option. But I don't want to encourage you to do that. I want to urge you and appeal to you to present your whole lives as living sacrifices. There is a rub, you see, because there's coming a day, a final day, when we will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will stand before this righteous and just God to give an account of our lives. And on that day, all, everything that we've done will be tested with fire and will be consumed. So we have the opportunity today, every day, daily, to take up our cross, to submit our lives to that testing in advance so that what we do with our lives will stand at the end. Everything else is going to disappear Will we make our lives count before God by letting him consume us now?